Now tonight we're going to do 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I was perhaps hoping that we might get through chapter 9, but that will not happen. Uh, It's just going to be chapter 8 tonight, but chapters 8 and 9 sort of form a unit together because both of them have to do with the subject uh, that you hear a lot about in the church in some regard. It's the whole issue of giving and uh, how a person should give. And let me say before we jump into the text here at chapter 8, verse 1, that uh, it's a little bit awkward for me as a pastor to stand before people and talk about giving just in the sense that uh, there's always going to be some people who, you know, let's say you've never been to this church before and you come in and you go, well, there they are. They're talking about money again in the church. And let me just say that, uh, you know, we're just teaching through the Bible. And when the Bible talks about giving, we talk about giving. And uh, that's what the topic is here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so you're always kind of teaching on it with that sort of hesitancy. Well, you don't want to think that, you know, it's just this and this and that. It's all about money. But on the other hand, there's another sense in which uh, I'm happy to stand before you tonight and tell you what the Bible says about it. Because when you see what the Bible says about giving and compare it to what people say about giving, boy, is it a wonderful eye-opener. It's just so refreshing just to hear what the Word of God has to say about it. And uh, in First and in Second Corinthians are some of the best passages in the entire Bible on this whole subject of giving. And uh, you have to number Second Corinthians chapter 8 right among those passages. So let's take a look here, beginning at verse 1. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace that we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality, or generosity would be another word for liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints." And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now, I think this is interesting as we begin in verse 1 where he's talking in this chapter. Paul is going to write about other churches and their example in giving. And in his first few words on the subject, Paul shows that he considers both the opportunity to give And the willingness to give, look at how he refers to it in verse 1, the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. In other words, Paul is going to hold up the churches of Macedonia as an example of giving. Macedonia was a region. Think of the Greek peninsula. The southern part was known as Achaia. Corinth was in the region of Achaia. The northern part of the Greek peninsula was known as Macedonia. And you had cities such as Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, in that area. Paul is saying to the Corinthians who lived in the region of Achaia, he says, you should check out these Macedonian Christians. They know how to give. Wow, were they great givers. And he goes on to say in verse 1 that it was by the grace of God that they were such great givers. This was an opportunity and the willingness to give was in them because of the grace of God. Now we'll be talking more about that later. But I want you to see here how they gave and why it was so noteworthy to Paul in verse 2. They gave, in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy in their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. In other words, Paul is reporting to the Corinthian Christians the example of the Macedonian Christians. Now, the Macedonians, even though they were in a great trial of affliction... And even though they were in deep poverty, they still gave generously. That's what it means when it says abounded in the riches of their liberality. Uh, It's funny, you know, the word liberal has a very definite political connotation in the world today. But apart from its political connotation, it means to be generous. It means to be open and free and giving. Now, you know, the, the... problem with political liberalism is it's very generous, but it's generous with other people's money. Now, Paul is saying that the Macedonians were liberal with their own money. They were very generous and freely giving. Now, we we might just stop and take a step back and ask a very valid question. Why is Paul writing about giving at all? 
What is he collecting money for? Well, Paul was receiving a very specific collection to help the Christians in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem were very poor and needy, and Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. It would take him a couple years to get there, but Paul was on a roundabout circuit on his way to Jerusalem. And he said, listen, as long as I'm on the way to Jerusalem, I'm going to receive a collection in each one of the churches I'm at, and I'll say, let's collect it all, and then we'll give it. And when I go to Jerusalem, it'll be my way of saying, hey, listen, you wonderful Christians in Jerusalem have spread the gospel all over the world. Now you guys are in need. Here's what the other churches want to give to support you, what they want to give to help you. So it was... You know, uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, missionary relief fund for Jerusalem is what he was uh, collecting for. Now, notice this. Paul says that even though you guys were poor, you were generous. Now, notice this. He goes on and he talks about this, how they gave in verse 3, how the Macedonians gave in two ways. First of all, they gave according to their ability. Verse 3, for I bear witness that according to their ability, he says, they gave. Now, what does it mean that the Macedonians gave according to their ability? Well, it means that the bottom line was their gift really wasn't that much. I mean, they were poor. The dollar figure behind their gift wasn't astronomically high. You know, you wouldn't look at the gift that the Macedonians gave and go, wow, boy, that's off the charts. Boy, that's a lot of money. You wouldn't say that. Why? Because they gave according to their ability. They didn't have a lot of money. But notice what he says there. The second way they gave in verse 3 was, yes, and beyond their ability. In other words, the gift wasn't all that big in and of itself, but in proportion to what they did have, they gave beyond their ability. And you say, well, wait a minute, how could their giving be according to their ability, yet beyond their ability? Well, think about the widow and giving the widow's mite. That's exactly the kind of picture uh, painted here. First of all, was a mite very much? No. And she gave two mites, right? That's all she gave, two mites. It wasn't very much. You know, you would buy things for the upkeep of the temple. I think that would probably buy enough oil to burn the lamps in the temple for about, you know, two minutes. It wasn't much. So she gave according to her ability, which wasn't much. But on the other hand, you would say she gave beyond her ability. I mean, when you think about the example of the widow giving her two mites, that's like giving less than two pennies. Two pennies and dropping it in there. Now listen, guys. Would anybody say you were a generous person if you gave half of your total assets to God? That's pretty generous, isn't it? The widow could have done that. She had two mites. She could have kept one. And she could have given one. And everybody would have thought her extremely generous, more generous than anybody else. But she didn't even do that. She gave them both. She didn't even keep one mite to herself. So on the one hand, her gift was small, but on the other hand, in proportion to what she had, it was way beyond her ability. And this same principle as giving was evident in the Macedonian Christians. And so notice the heart they had. This is unbelievable. Look at it in verse 4. He says, they were imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Friends, this is exactly how it should be. Paul was not imploring them to give. They were imploring him to receive. Paul didn't have to stand in front of the Macedonians and goes, now come on, we got to do it. That offering was enough. Let's pass the basket again. You know, we got to do this. The thermometer's only half full on the chart. You know, blah, 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 blah. You know, fill out the pledge cards again. It's just nonsense. The Macedonians had such a heart that they begged Paul for the opportunity to give. That's where their hearts were at. So it says they were imploring us. I think it's just remarkable that the Macedonian Christians didn't have much to give, but they wanted to give. They saw it as a privilege to give. Friends, true Christian generosity cannot be measured by how much one has to give. Oftentimes, those who have less are more generous with what they do have. I've seen this. I've seen this in traveling in uh, Eastern Europe. You know, you go to a home of a, of a Christian, and they just don't have much in the cupboard. They just don't have much. Period, they don't have much. You know what? They'll go out and they'll spend what to them could be the equivalent of a week's pay to feed you. 
And they'll set it all out before you. And if you go, oh no, I wouldn't dream of it, you will defend them so greatly. Because it is their honor, it is their privilege to give unto you. They don't have hardly anything. My friends, a lot of times, you can't say a person's more generous or less generous based on their income. It's all having to do with the heart. You know, I think this is fantastic too. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. In other words, the Macedonian Christians gave far beyond what Paul was hoping for. He goes, we weren't even hoping for this kind of response. But what gave their giving, what made their giving so spectacular? Friends, it was not the dollar amount. The dollar amount of the Macedonian giving was not all that impressive. But notice how they gave. Look at verse 5. Oh, this is one of the best passages in giving in the whole Bible. It says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. Why were the Macedonians such good examples of giving? Because they first gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave their trust to Paul and the other apostles. Friends, let me tell you something. You could sit down and write out the biggest check you could imagine. Go ahead, write it out. Big, big check. You give it. But if you don't give yourself to the Lord, it's not true giving. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't want your money, first and foremost. He wants you. He wants your heart. You really want to do some giving that God will honor? Give yourself to the Lord. And Paul adds in verse 5, and then he says, and then to us by the will of God. Paul says, no, first give your heart to the Lord, then give your heart to the apostles, to the Lord's leaders, then go ahead and give your money. Friends, in giving, the real issue isn't giving money. It's giving ourselves to the Lord. And if we've really given ourselves to the Lord, then the right kind of money giving will very naturally follow. Right? Because what difference does it make? When you give yourself to the Lord, then you don't go around thinking, well, this is mine and this is the Lord's. No, it's all the Lord's. Because you gave yourself to the Lord. That's, well, whatever, Lord, whatever you want to do with it, it belongs to you. So he goes on here, verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Ooh, now that's a heavy verse. Let's see what leads up to it there in verse 6. So Paul says, we urge Titus, as he begun, he'd complete this grace in you as well. In other words, Paul's associate named Titus was the guy who delivered this letter. 2 Corinthians, Titus delivered the letter, and Titus was going to receive the collection. And Titus was sent saying, okay, now let's follow through and complete what you guys had promised before. Now, I can just kind of imagine that the Corinthian Christians were willing to take up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, yeah, fine, we'll do it. And they said, okay, Paul, we'll give you that money when you go here on your way to Jerusalem. But then, you know, there was kind of some rough feelings between the Corinthian Christians and Paul, right? And I think when those rough feelings came along, the Corinthians zipped up their pocketbooks. You know, now Paul says, look, let's follow through on what your original intention was. Let's, let's do, let's get this. Let's complete what you've started. Let's complete this grace. The, the Corinthian Christians may have intended to give. They may have thought about giving. They have been favorable to the idea of giving. Yet all of this was useless unless they did, in fact, complete this grace. Friends, let me tell you something. That oftentimes, our intentions, our vows, our resolutions are useless without action. They can be damaging without action. And I'm not just applying this to giving, although it can apply there, right? Well, I vow to give so much. Listen, if you vow to give it, you better give it. But it's true in other areas of your life. So often, well, I intend to do this before the Lord. Oh, I think, and a lot of times we'll satisfy ourselves with the thought of doing it instead of the actual doing it. No, 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 friends. It was time for the Corinthian Christians to act, and Titus was going to help them do this. And so Paul says in verse 7, As you abound in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all diligence, and your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now, you know what I, I wonder here? I think this is probably one of those passages where Paul's being 
kind of a little bit sarcastic with the Corinthians. I mean, think about his relationship in the state of the Corinthian church. Does this sound like the Corinthian church? You abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us? Had the Corinthian Christians been abounding in their love for Paul? I don't think so. I think Paul's being sarcastic here. I think basically what he's saying is, is that the Corinthian Christians probably thought of themselves as abounding in all those things, right? They were walking around, oh yeah, we're full of love. Oh yeah, we're full of all this. Oh yeah, we're great Christians. And Paul says, very well, I'll take your word for it. You do abound in all these things. So now abound in this also. Open up your pocketbooks and give just like you promised to give. That's basically what he's saying. Now, notice here what he says here in verse 7. He says, see that you abound in this grace also. I think this is very significant because this is already the fourth time in this chapter that Paul has referred to giving money as a grace. Isn't that interesting? I mean, grace is a very spiritual term, but Paul's talking about it in regards to our wallets, that giving money is a grace. Paul uses the exact same word for grace to refer to the giving of money. What does he mean by this? Well, let me point out three things that I think he's getting at. Number one, the ability to give and the heart to give is a free gift from God. Friends, why do you even have the resources to give? Because God has blessed you. It's a gift from God. Why do you even have the desire to give? Because God's done a work in your heart, right? What would you be left unto yourself? Well, you'd be a selfish old miser, you old coot, right? But God's done a work in your heart, and he's made you generous. That's a gift of grace. Giving is a work of God's grace in us. And when you see a believer who is truly generous, a great work of God has been done in their heart. Now listen, let me tell you something about this. I think sometimes this gets a bad rap in the church. There's a lot of misunderstanding about it. Sometimes people stand back and they, they look at somebody who maybe gives in a substantial way to God's work. And they stand back and they go, they don't want to get involved. They just want to write the checks. Can I say, praise God for that brother or sister who's writing the checks. They are getting involved. What do you mean that's not getting involved? You better believe it is. You know, that man or that woman is out there working hours to make that money. And the hours it took them to work that money, they were working for the Lord and working directly for the church, supporting it. We should never say, well, they just want to write the check and not get involved. No, giving is getting involved, and it demonstrates a true work of God's grace in somebody's heart if they've been made a generous giver. So secondly, I think giving is related to grace in that our giving should be like God's giving of grace to us. How did God give you his grace? He gave it to you freely, he gave it to you generously, and he gave it to you because he wanted to give it. That's how grace is given. Your grace isn't given because we need it. It's given because God wants to give it. It's not given because we deserve it. It's given because God wants to give us. When God gives to us out of his grace, the motive for his giving is in him. It's not in the one who does the receiving. So this is how we should give. Because the motive of the love and the generosity of God is so big in our heart that we simply must give. I got to give. I got to. God's just done it in my heart. I got to do it. Let me give a third way that grace is related to giving. Our giving, like God's grace to us, should be offered without expectation of payment in return. You know, when God gives to us of his grace, he's not there, well, I gave to you, so you give to me back, so come on, pony up, boy. That's not how grace is given. Grace is given freely. God does not give to us expecting payback. We can never repay God. We just serve him and love him in return. So friends, that's how we should give as well. Alan Redpath said this, Once you see the matter of giving is centered in this lovely word grace, it lifts the whole act away from mechanics, from pressure and duty, from obligation and mere legalism. It lifts us up into the most lovely atmosphere of an activity which seeks by giving to convey to all others 
all that is lovely, all that is beautiful, all that is good, and all that is glorious. What a lovely word this word is. There is no area in the Christian life in which grace shines so much, so beautifully, so delightfully, and so happily as when giving comes from the background of poverty. That's what the Macedonians had. So Paul says, listen, hey, Corinthians, you abound in all these things, abound in this grace also be givers. But notice what he says in verse 8. He goes on to say, I speak not by commandment. Hey, I'm not commanding you to give. Friends, can I tell you something? Do you know what commanded giving is? That's taxation. The church isn't into taxing, or it should not be. That's just not the way to do it, period. Don't let anybody command you to give. Don't let anybody manipulate you into giving. No. Give freely, give wisely, give intelligently. Paul says, I speak not by commandment. My friends, if the apostle Paul would not command giving, how could any preacher or leader of God's people stand up and say they have more authority than the apostle Paul? But notice what he says here in verse 8. This is heavy. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Oh, my friends, there are two heavy, heavy things Paul is saying there. This was a huge eye-opener to me. I, I, had to, I read that, and I, no, it's not saying that. And I read it, and it's not, friends, it's saying it. Can I tell you what it's saying here? You tell me if I'm not cutting this straight here, right? Paul is saying that giving can measure the sincerity of your love. Look at it. I am testing the sincerity of your love. What's he testing by? By whether or not you're going to give and give generously. Wow. Now that's something a lot of times we don't want to say. But if you just think about it for a minute, it's true, isn't it? You can test the sincerity of somebody's love by how and what they give to. Let me tell you something. The things you love, you'll spend money on, won't you? I know I will. There's no doubt about it. I've got a new surfboard not too long ago. And can I just tell you something? Jehovah Jireh, and I didn't have to spend a single penny for that surfboard. God gave me that surfboard. But that's not how I planned it. I planned on shelling out bucks for it, and I was not hesitant about it one bit. I did not feel bad about it one bit. I was going to drop that dough on that surfboard and not feel bad about it one bit. Praise God, he's a glorious God, and he provided that surfboard for free. <laughs> but the point of it is, it wouldn't matter. I wasn't waiting for God to provide that surfboard for free. I would have plunked the money down in a minute. You'll spend money on the things you love. Well, friends, isn't it true that you can test the sincerity of somebody's love for others in the body of Christ by what they do with their money? Many of us would like to think that we can love without giving. But what does 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 say? Let me read it to you. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Well, let me give it to you just in the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we give and how we follow through on our commitment to give, it's a valid test of your love. All right, that's the first thing he says there in verse 8. Mm, heavy, that's a heavy thing to say, my friends. But notice this, this is even heavier. I, I'm almost even more uncomfortable with this. I'm kind of like, Lord, are you sure you're saying this here? Look at verse 8. But I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. In other words, I'm testing the diligence of your love, or the sincerity of your love, by comparing it to the diligence of others. And who are the others he's talking about? The Macedonian Christians. Paul is this man, this is kind of cold. Paul's telling the Corinthian Christians, I'm comparing you to the Macedonian Christians to see if you're going to be as generous as they are. And I'm testing you by that standard. 
Friends, I'm telling you, Paul is saying that he openly compared the giving of the Corinthian Christians to the giving of the Macedonian Christians. And it is not unfair to compare our giving with the giving of others, at least in some sense. You know who gives us a pattern for that? How about Jesus? Jesus was sitting there one day at the temple, looking at people come in, bringing their gifts. And Jesus saw a widow, and she came in and dropped in two mites, and he compared her giving with the giving of everybody else. And friends, as a dollar amount, she didn't give anything significant at all. But Jesus knew that her gift was more significant than any of the other gifts. Now, please, of course, of course, of course, Paul is not encouraging a fundraising competition between the churches of Macedonia and Corinth. He's not doing that at all. That kind of stuff is carnal, silly, it's foolishness. It has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. But Paul is simply using the Macedonians who gave even in their poverty as an example of giving. Saying, listen, Corinthians, look at these guys. If they could do it, you can do it. You see, bottom line is this. Since the Corinthians had more than the Macedonians, they should give more. That's all there is to it, my friends. I'm, I'm not going to cut it any other way. The Corinthian church was a wealthier church. Now, it's interesting. You can go back in ancient history and archaeology and all that, and you discover that on a regional basis, the area of Corinth was much more prosperous economically than the region of Macedonia. Much more prosperous. And Paul's basically saying, you know what? You guys, Mr. and Mrs. Corinthian Christian, you guys are a lot better off than the Macedonians. There is no reason for you giving any less than they did. John Calvin put it plainly in his commentary. He said, Rich men owe God a large tribute, and poor men have no reason to be ashamed if what they give is small. I don't know any other way to cut it. Paul compared the giving between the Macedonians and the Corinthians. So the first great example that Paul paints for the Corinthian Christians, he goes, look at the Macedonian Christians. Look at how they give. And it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Those Macedonian Christians really gave. They gave from a right heart. They first gave themselves to the Lord. Then they gave themselves to Paul. And, and they gave very spectacularly. But there's even a better example of giving rather than the Macedonian Christians. You know who that example is? Jesus. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's that word grace again, giving of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Oh, that's a great verse. I don't know. I think that verse might have a Christmas sermon in it for this year. That's a great, great verse. Let me tell you something. Spurgeon preached like, I don't know, seven or eight sermons on that verse alone. It's a spectacular verse talking about the giving heart of Jesus Christ. And friends, before we go through and just pick apart this verse piece by piece, let me just say that the number one reason why we should be givers is because we serve a giving God. God's great goal for our life is to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ to make us more like Jesus. And if you are being made more and more like Jesus, you're going to be more and more a generous giver. That's all there is to it. You cannot be like Jesus and not be a generous giver. That's all there is to it. Jesus is like that. So Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Again, from the context and from how Paul has used the word grace in this passage, we know what Paul's really saying. He's saying, you know the giving of our Lord Jesus. You know the grace-filled giving of our Lord Jesus. And what did he did? Notice that for, he goes here in verse 9, that though he was rich, that's where he starts. Jesus was rich. Now, friends, this is spectacular. Let me just say, when was Jesus rich? When he ever walked this earth, when he was ever a child or an adolescent, or a man, was he ever rich? 
Not when He walked on this earth. No, but there was a time when Jesus was rich. Because Jesus existed before He ever added humanity to His deity. Here, Paul subtly but definitely points to the deity of Jesus. There is no way Paul could write, though he was rich, if Jesus had begun his existence in the womb of Mary. No, my friends. Though he was rich, Jesus lived in the richness of heaven. And what riches? Jesus, as the eternal second member of the Trinity, as God the Son, living in the riches and splendor of the ivory palaces of heaven, surrounded constantly by the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God. These riches enjoyed by Jesus before he added humanity to his deity make any amount on wealth of this earth seem nothing in comparison. No, my friends, though he was rich, notice, it says there in verse 9, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, I'm going to make a point here that might seem a little subtle to you, but I think it's important. Paul never says that Jesus lost his riches. It says there that though he was rich, and I don't think he means that though he used to be rich at one time, Jesus was rich and is rich, but he became poor. And again, I hope I'm not confusing anybody with this, but I would say that just as Jesus added humanity, but never lost his deity, so he added poverty, but never lost his riches. One commentator puts it like this. For he assumed poverty, yet did not lose his riches. Inwardly he was rich, outwardly poor. His deity was hidden in his riches, his manhood apparent in his poverty. Jesus never lost his riches, but he added poverty to his riches. And he says, yet for your sakes he became poor. Friends, Jesus lived his life on this earth as a poor man. Now, every once in a while, you see these guys on TV. And uh, they wear fine suits and have brilliantly coiffed hair. And uh, there's a few of them out there who go around teaching that Jesus was, in fact, a rich man. They say, well, look, he had two or three different homes. He, uh, you know, had this and that. And this is the one that just kills me. He wore designer clothes, they like to say, because of the, the robe that he wore. I count it as a miracle of biblical proportions that these guys haven't been taken out in an alley and pistol whipped for their, for their just... Horrible doctrine. Just terrible. These guys should wake up every morning and thank God that they live in the 20th century because in previous times, men like this would have been burned at the stake. And here they are saying these incredible things about Jesus. My friends, he became poor. Jesus was a poor man. Now, let me say this. We should not exaggerate the poverty of Jesus. And it's possible to do that. Jesus was not a destitute beggar. He was not a vagrant or a a bum. No, he was not that at all. It is possible to exaggerate the poverty of Jesus. No, please do not do that. Yet, Jesus could say of himself, foxes have holes and the birds have of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now when we contrast the simple life of Jesus, and that's how I would describe Jesus more than anything, not so much as destitute poverty, but just simple. His life was lived completely simply. You know, that, that house that you've got to go home and take care of all the time and mow the lawn and fix the faucets and paint and do all that stuff? Jesus didn't have one of those. 
and the car and all that stuff and all this, all the, all the stuff. Jesus didn't have. He trusted God and and he received the generous giving of others and he just just God did it. And I suppose when he needed money and that he well, told Peter to go out and catch a fish and there'd be a coin in the mouth. Or I know he'd make a table for somebody or whatever. It's just he just lived very simply. But you see, the simple life is even more amazing when we contrast it with his existence before adding humanity to his deity. From the glory of heaven. Now friends, I don't know. If I was God, I don't think I would have done it that way. I mean, if I was God, living in heaven, knowing the glory and the splendor of what God is and what he could do, and knowing that, I don't think I would have become a man until like the 20th century when they had good mattresses and beds and proper indoor plumbing, and all that stuff that that Jesus never had. You see, poverty always feels worse when one has been rich. And Jesus knew the glory and the splendor of heaven. But he became poor. Why? For our sakes. You see, most amazing of all is why Jesus accepted this simple life of poverty. For our sakes, this was Jesus' giving. You know, somebody might say, well, was Jesus ever a big giver? You know, did he ever write the big checks? Well, yes, he did. Jesus gave financially in the sense that he accepted a humble life of power, of, of poverty. Now, friends, can we just agree on something for a minute? That Jesus had the power to live as the wealthiest man in all history? Does anybody doubt that for a moment? That was with a snap of his fingers, with the, with the thought of his mind. Jesus could have lived as the... As the Wealthiest man this world has ever, ever seen. But he didn't. Why? For our sakes. Now, I was just thinking, I was just scratching my head. Now, wait a minute, because it's not immediately apparent. What good does it do me that Jesus was poor? I was thinking, man, it's all the same to me, Lord. He could have been driving a Cadillac back then. He could have been, could have been living in opulence. could have had a mansion. I, it doesn't matter to me, Jesus. Live any way you want. What, what good does it do me that Jesus was poor? Well, you know what? As you think about it, it does a lot of good for us. First of all, it shows us the giving heart of God, doesn't it? Doesn't it show us the giving heart of God? Secondly, it shows us the relative importance of material things, that they're just not that important materially. If Jesus didn't think they were all that important, they must not be that important. Thirdly, it makes Jesus open and accessible to all. Friends, you know how wealth is and what wealth does to some people, not to every person, praise God, but to some people, wealth makes them very intimidating. And some people won't go up and won't won't you know freely come to a person if they know they're very wealthy because their wealth intim- Jesus didn't want to intimidate anybody I think another reason why Jesus became poor for our sake is because it rebukes the pride that might refuse to come to a poor savior Some people might I don't want to come to some poor man to be my savior Oh no Jesus says I'll rebuke your pride you have to come to me that way I think it's also because it gave others the privilege of giving to Jesus. That's why he became poor for our sakes. Can you imagine how charged up people must have been to give to Jesus, to help support him and his men? That must have made them ecstatic. You know, Jesus hung around with rich people who wanted to give things to him and say, here, you know, come stay in my house, come eat at my table. I want to give you, it's a blessing for me to give to you, Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, well, I don't want, you know, your, no. He received it because he knew it was a blessing to them as well as to himself. Friends, most of all, it was for our sake that Jesus became poor because it fulfilled the heart and the will and the plan of God. It made our salvation possible. Friends, it's amazing, isn't it? That for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now think about it. What were the real riches of Jesus? It was the eternal glory and splendor that he had, and we can have the same riches. We can have a taste of it right now, and we're going to have it forever in heaven. We're going to have the riches of Jesus Christ. We will. We're his co-heirs. We're heirs along with him. Whatever inheritance he gets from the Father, we share in it, friends. Isn't that exciting? We receive it. So, 
Paul's done giving them the examples. The example of the Macedonian Christians, the example of the Corinthian, uh, of, the, of Jesus himself, I should say, given to the Corinthian Christians. Now in verse 10, now he's going to talk more about giving. It says, and in this I give my advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so that there may also be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. No, my friends, the, the Corinthian Christians had previously expressed a desire, a readiness to give. Now Paul says, now it's time to actually do it. Friends, let me just lay straight with you here. The devil will let you resolve as much as you like. The more the better, as long as you never do it. No, my friends. Paul said, you made this resolution, now let's follow through on it. Let's not make it just words. Let's go on with it. And he says, verse 10, this is very good, or actually verse 11. He says, so that there may also be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. Friends, can I just tell you that God does not expect you to give what you do not have? Stop beating yourself up over it. I know some Christians just beat themselves up. Oh, you know, I wish I could be given this. Oh, I wish. I... God doesn't expect you to give what you don't have. I don't know how more to say that. Now, let me say this, though. What we have is related to what we spend. Isn't that the truth? And if we overspend and therefore ha never have anything to give, we can't excuse it before God by just by saying, well, I don't have anything. No, we need to really ask God to help us with our spending habits that they glorify him and so that we have something to give to God. But friends, he goes, listen, have a willing mind, have a ready heart, and he goes, listen, it's accepted, in verse 12 he says, it's accepted according to what he has and not according to what he does not have. Now again, God does not expect us to give what we do not have, and true Christian giving cannot be measured by the amount. Friends, you might have a, a million dollars that you give to God's work, and God would look you square in the eye and say, that's not enough. You're not giving enough. Say, how can that be? I gave No, God knows what you have, and God knows your heart, and God knows what he's telling you to give, and what you gave him wasn't enough. And somebody else may give $10, and they're giving with tremendous sacrifice and generosity. It's not measured by the dollar amount. True giving is measured by obedience, proportion, and need, not by amount. The bottom line is just this. Give what the Lord tells you to give. Now, you can't get away from this issue teaching through a chapter like this. Everybody wants to come up to you, and everybody wants to ask you, well, pastor, how much am I supposed to give? How much am I supposed to give to the Lord? Now, I believe that Paul's principle throughout this letter and other letters remind us that there is no one answer to that question for every believer. How much are you supposed to give? Well, in giving, many people go back to the Old Testament law of the tithe. You know what it means to tithe, don't you? It means to give 10% unto the Lord. Now, may I say that I believe this is a good principle for giving. And it's a broad benchmark. Yet, let's be very upfront. Nowhere does the New Testament specifically command tithing. It speaks of it in a positive light. If it's done with a right heart, that's in Luke chapter 11. But friends, nowhere does the New Testament specifically command tithing. The New Testament does speak with great clarity on the principles of giving. It teaches us that our giving should be regular, that it should be planned, that it should be proportional, and that it should be private. That's how your giving should be. By the way, that's in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. It tells us that our giving should be regular. Paul says, as you gather together on the first day of the week, let everyone give a gift. And then he says it should be planned. 
He says, let every man determine in his own heart what he should give. Your giving's between you and the Lord. You should plan it out. Thirdly, your giving should be proportional. Paul says, as every man has been blessed, so let him give. Has God blessed you with more? Then you should give more. Now, this passage, especially next week we'll see this, that the New Testament teaches us that our giving should also be generous, freely given, and cheerful. So, since the New Testament doesn't emphasize tithing, one might not be strict on it for Christians. Although, let me say this. There are few Christians I've heard. Well, just, let me just say, maybe I just had one bad experience with one bad guy. <laughs> oh, my heavens. But one of the guys that I knew who argued most vociferously against tithing did it out of pure self-interest. He just didn't want to give that much money. And this was a guy who had pretty significant resources. And you know what? He just didn't want to give the money. And so he had brilliant biblical arguments against tithing. And I think that even if he was uh, literally correct according to his biblical understanding, I don't think God honored it at all because God saw the motive of his heart. But friends, let me tell you something this as well. Paul does teach very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1-4, through 4, that our giving should be proportional. And I think it's fair to say that our giving should be some percentage and 10% is a good benchmark, a, a starting place. For some people, to give 10%, honestly, it's nowhere near enough. For other people, at their present time, in their present situation, for you to give 5% would be a massive step of faith. Well, step out in what you can. But let's just get back to the principle here, okay? If our question is, how little can I give and still be pleasing to God? And you're asking the wrong question, aren't you? Is that the question you're asking? Then your heart isn't in the right place at all. We should have the attitude of some early Christians. You look up in the earliest Christian writings about giving and tithing, and you know what they used to say? They said, hallelujah, we're not under the tithe. We can give more. Friends, you want to know how much you should give? Talk to God about it. Talk to God about it. And friends, what he tells you to give, give. Don't give out of manipulation. Don't give out of arm twisting. Don't give. You talk to God about it and say, God, I want my giving to be according to your word. I want it to be regular, planned, proportional, private, generous, freely given, and cheerful. Now you tell me how much and I'll give it, Lord. You just tell me, God. And then follow through on what God tells you to do. Now, verse 13 gives another principle here. Oh, this is very good. It says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be an equality. As it is written, He who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. That's very important what Paul says in verse 13. I think this is an often neglected verse when talking about giving. Paul says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. In other words, the Corinthian Christians were not giving so that the Jerusalem Christians would get rich and lazy at their expense. Paul was taking the collection so that the Jerusalem Christians would merely survive. The goal was not to burden the Corinthian Christians. Nor was the goal to make it all easy for the Jerusalem Christians. But sometimes it's presented that way, isn't it? Friends, how often have you heard the appeal for funds? You're so rich and have such a good time. Don't you feel terrible about that? Look at this other person. They don't have anything. And don't you feel terrible about how much you need to be burdened more, brother? You've got it too easy. Do you need to deny yourself and this and this? Friends, I think Paul is teaching exactly against that kind of appeal for funds right here. He says very plainly in verse 13, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. That's not the point. That's not the goal. Some people like to say, give till it hurts. And then keep on giving until it feels better again. But friends, that isn't God's goal. It is not God's goal for us to give till it hurts. 
The goal is not to afflict those who are doing the giving. That's not God's purpose. The goal is to display the giving heart and the love of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said this, a very wise statement about this passage. He said, this teaching is needed to refute fanatics who think that you have done nothing unless you strip yourself completely and put everything into a common fund. Friends, that's not the point of Paul's teaching here at all. Paul's not trying to say that if your life is easier than someone else's, you're in sin. That you have to walk around with the same financial burden that somebody else does. He says very plainly, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But instead, look at what he does mean, verse 8. He says, by any quality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance may also supply your lack. Now check this out. When Paul talks about inequality here, he's not talking about a material equality. He's talking about a spiritual and material equality. He says, okay, let's look at it this way, Corinthians. You guys are abundant materially, but you're pretty lame spiritually. Well, here's the Jerusalem Christians. They're abundant spiritually, but they're pretty lame material. You supply their lack, and they'll supply your lack, and it all works together. See, the equality he's talking about is not some kind of communist or socialist equality. It's an equality where we're meeting one another's spiritual needs and material needs. Friends, it is not a communist or socialistic equality, and that's important to point out very, plain, very plainly here. You know, in socialist or communistic systems where it's said that all people are said to live at the same economic level, and none are supposed to be richer than the other are. That's not the equality Paul's talking about here. Let me say something categorically, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul would say the same thing if he was here right now, that communism and socialism themselves are evils. They're noble ideas in theory, but they're absolute tyrannies. Because whenever sharing is commanded at the end of a gun, it'll never work. And it's produced the most cruel tyrannies this earth has ever seen. Friends, this is not the kind of equality Paul means here. The kind of equality he means. Equality where people share materially and spiritually. So he lets them know, hey, they have an abundance spiritually, you have an abundance materially, get the two together, and then there will be an equality. And I like how he quotes this passage from Exodus at the end there in verse 15. He says, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. You know, he's referring to the gathering of manna. You know how that worked, right? When you gathered manna, what happened if you tried to hoard it? It spoiled, right? That's what Paul's showing. He's saying, hey, you know, property's like manna. It won't stand hoarding. You know, for some of us, when we've got that hoarding mentality, your stuff's spoiling. Well, what's it spoiling? Spoiling your heart. That's what it's spoiling. Oh, it's like manna, and that's how we should receive it. All right, let's wrap it up here. The last chunk is a big chunk here, 16 through the end of the chapter. He says, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Now, by the way, this drives commentators crazy. Who is this mystery brother mentioned in verse 18? Uh, blah, 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 blah. If, it, if it's anybody, it's probably Luke, but we don't know for sure. And can I just tell you right now, if it was really important, God would have told us. So let's move on. Verse 19. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them, and before the churches, the proof of your love and our boasting on your behalf. Can I give you a little synopsis of what Paul's saying there in verses 16 through 24? Run it all above board. 
Paul's saying, okay, when we swing by and pick up this collection, Titus is going to pick it up. And let me recommend Titus to you, Paul says. This guy's above board. He's a square guy. You can trust him. And this other brother that's going to be with him, you know, the mystery brother mentioned in verse 18, he's a square guy too. All the churches approve of him. And then Paul says, look at what he says. If you want to kind of summarize it, he says here in verse 21, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul knew that it was essential that the money that the church received should be administered in a glorifying way in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of men. Friends, it's just a reminder that all things financial in the church should be conducted above board and properly, and Paul took whatever steps were necessary so that no one could blame him with financial impropriety. I love this. What an amazing man Paul is. Friends, he could write like a poet, he could think like a theologian, but he could also act with the meticulous accuracy and integrity of the best accountant you'll ever find. Paul says, look, we're all operating it above board. Friends, do you see how he ends the chapter? What a glorious way. Verse 24, he says, Therefore show to them, and before the churches, the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. This is a pretty strong encouragement from Paul to give. He's saying that when Titus and the mystery brother come, that the Corinthian Christians should show them a good offering. You know why? He says, number one, because the churches will know of it. Therefore, show to them. Who's the them? Titus and the mystery brother, right? Show to them and before the churches. I don't know how, but the other... You see, I don't think Paul was shy. Paul, I don't think, would, would talk about an individual's giving. But Paul didn't seem to be shy about saying, listen, the Macedonian church gave this, and the Corinthian church gave this, to try to say, listen, you guys need to pony up more. You're not being very generous. Again, I don't think he'd do that with individuals, but with a congregation, he would. And so he says, therefore, show to them, and before the churches, the proof of your love. Again, what's the proof of their love? how generous they would be. Friends, I know there's something in us, there's something in, maybe it's just me, that kind of rebels a little bit against it. Don't, don't try to prove my love by, by money. That doesn't seem... But you know what? Sometimes, I'm not saying, and the Bible isn't saying, that that's the only proof of love, or even necessarily the best proof of love. But you have to say that it's a proof of love, how generous you'll be. Friends, you've got to say, is Jesus Christ the Lord over your wallet, too? Is he the Lord over your checkbook? That's the bottom line. And if he is, you'll show love through it. See, finally, he's saying that he's been boasting to others about what givers the Corinthian Christians had been, so that he asked them now to come through and to give like the givers he's been claiming they are. I've been boasting about you, Paul says. Now, follow through with it. Well, friends, you know what? It's a glorious thing for me to stand before you all and to boast about what a generous giving congregation uh, we have here. I think it's just spectacular. I really do. God has given us such a wonderfully generous group of people. And God provides so faithfully through the generous giving of the people here at this church. And you know what I get excited about as I consider this chapter? And when I consider the generous hearts of the people in this church, I said, you know what that is? That's a proof of love. Thank you, Jesus. That's a proof of love. It shows these people love God, and they're growing in their lives, and they're just loving him with what they have. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So it's a beautiful thing for me to be able to say, I can boast before the Lord and before others, about your generosity. Because God has given us a very generous group of people here, and it's just spectacular to see what the Lord does. So next week, we're into chapter 9, and Paul gives maybe even more concrete principles about giving in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And it's a fantastic, fantastic chapter, talking more about giving. And I have to tell you, I'm rejoicing for the opportunity to teach on this. Because I believe that we live in such a completely materialistic age that the only antidote for being 
uh, materialistic is to have a giver's heart. You have a giver's heart, then you really can have the things of this world without holding on to them tightly. And it's a beautiful thing. And God can work that grace in us as we keep seeing them. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this generous congregation and, and for the proof of love that it shows in them, Lord. And I pray that you just keep us walking after you, Lord, and having your pattern of giving. Lord, I know that if Paul was here today, uh, he'd be talking about the saints in Simi Valley as a, a beautiful example of giving to other churches. And that's a great thing, Lord. So, Father, I just simply ask before you right now that you would uh, prepare our hearts for this and give us hearts set before you, ready and willing to follow you in everything, Lord, and to let this proof of love be seen in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.